This audio is presented by Hacker Noon, where anyone can learn anything about any technology. The H-A-L-I-C-T-I, the P-O-R-T-R-E-S-S, by Jean-Henri Fabre, Bramble Bees and Others by Jean-Henri Fabre, is part of the Hacker Noon book series. You can jump to any chapter in this book here. The H-A-L-I-C-T-I, the Portress Chapter 13. The H-A-L-I-C-T-I, the P-O-R-T-R-E-S-S. Dot. Leaving our village is no very serious matter when we are children. We even look on it as a sort of holiday. We are going to see something new, those magic pictures of our dreams. With age come regrets, and the close of life is spent in stirring up old memories. Then the beloved village reappears, in the biograph of the mind, embellished, transfigured by the glow of those first impressions, and the mental image, superior to the reality, stands out in amazingly clear relief. The past, the far-off past, was only yesterday. We see it, we touch it. For my part, after three quarters of a century, I could walk with my eyes closed straight to the flat stone where I first heard the soft chiming note of the midwife toad. Yes, I should find it to a certainty, if time, which devastates all things, even the homes of toads, has not moved it or perhaps left it in ruins. I see, on the margin of the brook, the exact position of the alder trees whose entangled roots, deep under the water, were a refuge for the crayfish. I should say, it is just at the foot of that tree that I had the unutterable bliss of catching a beauty. She had horns so long. An enormous claws, full of meat, Fori got her just at the right time. I should go without faltering to the ash under whose shade my heart beat so loudly one sunny spring morning. I had caught sight of a sort of white, cottony ball among the branches. Peeping from the depths of the wadding was an anxious little head with a red hood to it. Oh what unparalleled luck. It was a goldfinch, sitting on her eggs. Compared with a find like this, lesser events do not count. Let us leave them. In any case, they pale before the memory of the paternal garden, a tiny hanging garden of some thirty paces by ten, situated right at the top of the village. The only spot that overlooks it is a little esplanade on which stands the old castle, the Chateau de Saint-Léon standing just outside and above the village of Saint-Léon's, where the author was born in 1823. C.F. The Life of the Fly, Chapters 6 and 7. Translator's Note with the four turrets that have now become dovecotes. A steep path takes you up to this open space. From my house on, it is more like a precipice than a slope. Gardens buttressed by walls are staged interraces on the sides of the funnel-shaped valley. Ours is the highest, it is also the smallest. There are no trees. Even a solitary apple tree would crowd it. There is a patch of cabbages, with a border of sorrel, a patch of turnips and another off lettuces. That is all we have in the way of garden stuff, there is no room for more. Against the upper supporting wall, facing due south, is a vine arbor which, at intervals, when the sun is generous, provides half a basketful of white muscatel grapes. These are a luxury of our own, greatly envied by the neighbors, for the vine is unknown outside this corner, the warmest in the village. A hedge of currant bushes, the only safeguard against a terrible fall, forms a parapet above the next terrace. When our parents' watchful eyes are off us, welly flat on our stomachs, my brother and I, and look into the abyss at the foot of the wall bulging under the thrust of the land. It is the garden of Masurul Notaire. There are beds with box borders in that garden. There are pear trees reputed to give pears, real pears, more or less good to eat when they have ripened on the straw all through the late autumn. In our imagination, it is a spot of perpetual delight, a paradise, but a paradise seen the wrong way up. Instead of contemplating it from below, we gaze at it from above. How happy they must be with so much space and all those pears, we look at the hives, around which the hovering bees make a sort of russet smoke. They stand under the shelter of a great hazel. 
The tree has sprung up all of itself in a fissure of the wall, almost on the level of our currant bushes. While it spreads its mighty branches over the notary's hives, its roots, at least, are on our land. It belongs to us. The trouble is to gather the nuts. I creep along astride the strong branches projecting horizontally into space. I if I slip or if the support breaks, I shall come to grief in the midst of the angry bees. I do not slip and the support does not break. With the bent switch which my brother hands me, I bring the finest clusters within my reach. I soon fill my pockets. Moving backwards, still straddling my branch, I recover terra firma. O wondrous days of litheness and assurance, when, for a few filberts, on a perilous perch we braved the abyss. Enough. These reminiscences, so dear to my dreams, do not interest the reader. Why stir up more of them? I am content to have brought this fact into prominence. The first glimmers of light penetrating into the dark chambers of the mind leave an indelible impression, which the years make fresher instead of dimmer. Obscured by everyday worries, the present is much less familiar to us, in its petty details, than the past, with childhood's glow upon it. I see plainly in my memory what my prentice eyes saw, and I should never succeed in reproducing with the same accuracy what I saw last week. I know my village thoroughly, though I quitted it so long ago, and I know hardly anything of the towns to which the vicissitudes of life have brought me. An exquisitely sweet link binds us to our native soil. We are like the plant that has to be torn away from the spot where it put out its first roots. Poor though it be, I should love to see my own village again, I should like to leave my bones there. Does the insect in its turn receive a lasting impression of its earliest visions? Has it pleasant memories of its first surroundings? We will not speak of the majority, a world of wandering gypsies who establish themselves anywhere provided that certain conditions be fulfilled, but the others, the settlers, living in groups, do they recall their native village? Have they, like ourselves, a special affection for the place which saw their birth? Yes, indeed they have. They remember, they recognize the maternal abode, they come back to it, they restore it, they colonize it anew. Among many other instances, let us quote that of the zebra Halictus. She will show us a splendid example of love for one's birthplace translating itself into deeds. The Halictus's spring family acquire the adult form in a couple of months or so. They leave the cells about the end of June. What goes on inside these neophytes is they cross the threshold of the burrow for the first time. Something, apparently, that may be compared with our own impressions of childhood. An exact and indelible image is stamped on their virgin memories. Despite the years, I still see the stone whence came the resonant notes of the little toads, the parapet of currant bushes, the notary's garden of Eden. These trifles make the best part of my life. The Halictus sees in the same way the blade of grass whereon she rested in her first flight, the bit of gravel which her claw touched in her first climb to the top of the shaft. She knows her native abode by heart just as I know my village. The locality has become familiar to her in one glad, sunny morning. She flies off, seeks refreshment on the flowers near at hand and visits the fields where the coming harvests will be gathered. The distance does not lead her astray, so faithful are her impressions of her first trip. She finds the encampment of her tribe, among the burrows of the village, so numerous and so closely resembling one another, she knows her own. It is the house where she was born, the beloved house with its unforgettable memories. But, on returning home, the Halictus is not the only mistress of the house. The dwelling dug by the solitary bee in early spring remains, when summer comes, the joint inheritance of the members of the family. There are ten cells, or thereabouts, underground. Now from these cells there have issued none but females. This is the rule among the three species of halicti that concern us now and probably also among many others, if not all. They have two generations in each year. The spring one consists of females only. 
the summer one comprises both males and females, in almost equal numbers. We shall return to this curious subject in our next chapter. The household, therefore, if not reduced by accidents, above all if not starved be the usurping gnat, would consist of half a score of sisters, none but sisters, all equally industrious and all capable of procreating without a nuptial partner. On the other hand, the maternal dwelling is no hovel, far from it. The entrance gallery, the principal room of the house, will serve quite well, after a few odds and ends of refuse have been swept away. This will be so much gained in time, ever precious to the bee. The cells at the bottom, the clay cabins, are also nearly intact. To make use of them, it will be enough for the halictus to polish up the stucco with her tongue. Well, which of the survivors, all equally entitled to the succession, will inherit the house? There are six of them, seven, or more, according to the chances of mortality. To whose share will the maternal dwelling fall? There is no quarrel between the interested parties. The mansion is recognized as common property without dispute. The sisters come and go peacefully through the same door, attend to their business, pass and let the others pass. Down at the bottom of the pit, each has her little demen, her group of cells dug at the cost of fresh toil, when the old ones, now insufficient in number, are occupied. In these recesses, which are private estates, each mother works by herself, jealous of her property and of her privacy. Every elsewhere, traffic is free to all. The exits and entrances in the working fortress provide a spectacle of the highest interest. A harvester arrives from the fields, the feather brushes off her legs powdered with pollen. If the door be open, the bee at once dives underground. To tarry on the threshold would mean waste of time, and the business is urgent. Sometimes, several appear upon the scene at almost the same moment. The passage is too narrow for two, especially when they have to avoid any untimely contact that would make the flowery burden fall to the floor. The nearest to the opening enters quickly. The others, drawn up on the threshold in order of their arrival, respectful of one another's rights, await their turn. As soon as the first disappears, the second follows after her and is herself swiftly followed by the third and then the others, one by one. Sometimes, again, there is a meeting between a bee about to come out and a bee about to go in. Then the latter draws back a little and makes way for the former. The politeness is reciprocal. I see some who, when on the point of emerging from the pit, go down again and leave the passage free for the one who has just arrived. Thanks to this mutual spirit of accommodation, the business of the house proceeds without impediment. Let us keep our eyes open. There is something better than the well-preserved order of the entrances. When an halictus appears, returning from her round of the flowers, we see a sort of trap door, which closed the house, suddenly Fallon give a free passage. As soon as the new arrival has entered, the trap rises back into its place, almost level with the ground, and closes the entrance anew. The same thing happens when the insects go out. At a request from within, the trap descends, the door opens and the bee flies away. The outlet is closed forthwith. What can this valve be which, descending or ascending in the cylinder of the pit, after the fashion of a piston, opens and closes the house at each departure and at each arrival? It is an halictus, who has become the portress of the establishment. With her large head, she makes an impassable barrier at the top of the entrance hall. If anyone belonging to the house wants to go in or out, she pulls the cord, that is to say, she withdraws to a spot where the gallery becomes wider and leaves room for two. The other passes. She then at once returns to the orifice and blocks it with the top of her head. Motionless, ever in the lookout, she does not leave her post save to drive away importunate visitors. Let us profit by her brief appearances outside to take a look at her. We recognize in her an halictus similar to the others, which are now busy harvesting, but the top of her head is bald and her dress is dingy and threadbare. All the nap is gone, 
and one can hardly make out the handsome stripes of red and brown which she used to have. These tattered, work-worn garments make things clear to us. This bee who mounts guard and performs the office of a portress at the entrance to the burrow is older than the others. She is the foundress of the establishment, the mother of the actual workers, the grandmother of the present grubs. In the springtime of her life, three months ago, she wore herself out in solitary labors. Now that her ovaries are dried up, she takes a well-earned rest. No, rest is hardly the word. She still works, she assists the household to the best of her power. Incapable of being a mother for a second time, she becomes a portress, opens the door to the members of her family and makes strangers keep their distance. The suspicious kid, in La Fontaine's fable, Le Lou, La Chevre et La Chevre. Translator's note. Looking through the chink, said to the wolf, show me a white foot, or I shan't open the door. No less suspicious, the grandmother says to each comer, show me the yellow foot of an halictus, or you won't be let in. None is admitted to the dwelling unless she be recognized as a member of the family. See for yourselves. Near the burrow passes an ant, an unscrupulous adventuress, who would not be sorry to know the meaning of the honeyed fragrance that rises from the bottom of the cellar. Be off, or you'll catch it, says the portress, wagging her neck. As a rule the threat suffices. The ant decamps. Should she insist, the watcher leaves her sentry box, flings herself upon the saucy jade, buffets her and drives her away. The moment the punishment has been administered, she returns to her post. Next comes the turn of the leafcutter, Megachili Albacincta, Perez, which, unskilled in the art of burrowing, utilizes, after the manner of her kin, the old galleries dug by others. Those of the zebra halictus suit her very well, when the terrible gnat has left them vacant for lack of heirs. Seeking for a home wherein to stack her robinia leaf honeypots, she often makes a flying inspection of my colonies of halicti. A burrow seems to take her fancy, but, before she sets foot on earth, her buzzing is noticed by the sentry, who suddenly darts out and makes a few gestures on the threshold of her door. That is all. The leafcutter has understood. She moves on. Sometimes, the megachili has time to alight and insert her head into the mouth of the pit. In a moment, the portress is there, comes a little higher and barst away. Follows a not very serious contest. The stranger quickly recognizes the rights of the first occupant and, without insisting, goes to seek an abode elsewhere. An accomplished marauder, Kaleoxes caudata, spin. A parasite of the megachili, receives a sound drubbing under my eyes. She thought, the feather brain, that she was entering the leafcutter's establishment. She soon finds out her mistake. She meets the door-keeping Halictus, who administers a sharp correction. She makes off at full speed. And so with the others which, through inadvertence or ambition, seek to enter the burrow. The same intolerance exists among the different grandmothers. About the middle of July, when the animation of the colony is at its height, two sets of Halictia are easily distinguishable. The young mothers and the old. The former, much more numerous, brisk of movement and smartly arrayed, come and go unceasingly from the burrows to the fields and from the fields to the burrows. The latter, fade dan dispirited, wander idly from hole to hole. They look as though they had lost their way and were incapable of finding their homes. Who are these vagabonds? I see in them afflicted ones bereft of a family through the act of the odious gnat. Many burrows have been altogether exterminated. At the awakening of summer, the mother found herself alone. She left her empty house and went off in search of a dwelling where there were cradles to defend, a guard to mount. But Ho's fortunate nests already have their overseer, the foundress, who, jealous of her rights, gives her unemployed neighbor a cold reception. One sentry eyes enough, two would merely block the narrow guardroom. I am privileged at times to witness a fight between two grandmothers. 
when the tramp in quest of employment appears outside the door, the lawful occupant does not move from her post, does not withdraw into the passage, as she would be for Ian Halictus returning from the fields. Far from making way, she threatens the intruder with her feet and mandibles. The other retaliates and tries to force her way in notwithstanding. Blows are exchanged. The fray ends by the defeat of the stranger, who goes off to pick a quarrel elsewhere. These little scenes afford us a glimpse of certain details of the highest interest in the habits of the zebra Halictus. The mother who builds her nest in the spring no longer leaves her home, once her works are finished. Shut up at the bottom of the burrow, busied with the thousand cares of housekeeping, or else drowsing, she waits for her daughters to come out. When, in the summer heats, the life of the village recommences, having naught to do outside as a harvester, she stands sentry at the entrance to the hall, so as to let none and save the workers of the home, her own daughters. She wards off evilly disposed visitors. None can enter without the doorkeeper's consent. There is nothing to tell us that the watcher ever deserts her post. Not once do I see her leave her house to go and seek some refreshment from the flowers. Herage and her sedentary occupation, which involves no great fatigue, perhaps relieve her of the need of nourishment. Perhaps, also, the young ones returning from their plundering may from time to time disgorge a drop of the contents of their crops for her benefit. Fed or unfed, the old one no longer goes out. But what she does need is the joys of an active family. Many are deprived of these. The gnat's burglary has destroyed the busy household. The sorely tried bees abandon the deserted burrow. It is they who, ragged and careworn, wander through the village. When they move, their flight is only a short one. More often they remain motionless. It is they who, soured in their tempers, attack their fellows and seek to dislodge them. They grow rarer and more languid from day to day. Then they disappear for good. What has become of them? The little gray lizard had his eye on them. They are easily snapped up. Those settled in their own domain, those who guard the honey factory wherein their daughters, the heiresses of the maternal establishment, are at work, display wonderful vigilance. The more I see of them, the more I admire them. In the cool hours of the early morning, when the pollen flower is not sufficiently ripened by the sun and while the harvesters are still indoors, I see them at their posts, at the top of the gallery. Here, motionless, their heads flush with the earth, they bar the door to all invaders. If I look at them closely, they retreat a little and, in the shadow, await the indiscreet observer's departure. I return when the harvesting is in full swing, between eight o'clock and twelve. There is now, as the halictai go in or out, a succession of prompt withdrawals to open the door and of a sense to close it. The portress is in the full exercise of her functions. In the afternoon, the heat is too great and the workers do not go to the fields. Retiring to the bottom of the house, they varnish the new cells, they make the round loaf that is to receive the egg. The grandmother is still upstairs, stopping the door with her bald head. For her, there is no siesta during the stifling hours, the safety of the household requires her to forego it. I come back again at nightfall, or even later. By the light of a lantern, I again behold the overseer, as zealous and assiduous as in the daytime. Theothers are resting, but not she, for fear, apparently, of nocturnal dangers known to herself alone. Does she nevertheless end by descending to the quiet of the floor below? It seems probable, so essential must rest be, after the fatigue of such a vigil, it is evident that, guarded in this manner, the burrow is exempt from calamities similar to those which, too often, depopulate it in May. Let the gnat come now, if she dare, to steal the halictus's loaves. Let her lie in wait as long as she will. Neither her audacity nor her slyness will make her escape the lynx eyes of the sentinel, who will put her to flight with a threatening gesture or, if she persist, crush her with her nippers. She will not come, and we know the reason, 
until spring returns, she is underground in the pupa state. But, in her absence, there is no lack, among the fly rabble, of other Badenersen the toil of their fellow insects. Whatever the job, whatever the plunder, you will find parasites there. And yet, for all my daily visits, I never catch one of these in the neighborhood of the summer burrows. How cleverly the rascals ply their trade. How well aware are they of the guard who keeps watch at the Halictus's door. There is no foul deed possible nowadays, and the result is thought no fly puts in an appearance and the tribulations of last spring are not repeated. The grandmother who, dispensed by age from maternal bothers, mounts guard at the entrance of the home and watches over the safety of the family, tells us that in the genesis of the instinct sudden births occur, she shows us the existence of a spontaneous aptitude which nothing, either in her own past conduct or in the actions of her daughters, could have led us to suspect. Timorous in her prime, in the month of May, when she lived alone in the burrow of her making, she has become gifted, in her decline, with a superb contempt of danger and dares in her impotence what she never dared do in her strength. Formerly, when her tyrant, the gnat, entered the house in her presence, or, more often, stood face to face with her at the entrance, the silly bee did not stir, did not even threaten the red-eyed bandit, the dwarf whose doom she could so easily have sealed. Was it terror on her part? No, for she attended to her duties with her usual punctiliousness. No, for the strong do not allow themselves to be thus paralyzed by the weak. It was ignorance of the danger, it was sheer fecklessness. And behold, today, the ignoramus of three months ago knows the peril, knows it well, without serving any apprenticeship. Every stranger who appears is kept at a distance, without distinction of size or race. If the threatening gesture be not enough, the keeper sallies forth and flings herself upon the persistent one. Cowardice has developed into courage. How has this change been brought about? I should like to picture the Halictus gaining wisdom from the misfortunes of the spring and capable thenceforth of looking out for danger. I would gladly credit her with having learnt in the stern school of experience the advantages of a patrol. I must give up the idea. If, by dint of gradual little acts of progress, the bee has achieved the glorious invention of a janitress, how comes it that the fear of thieves is intermittent? It is true that, being by herself in May, she cannot stand permanently at her door. The business of the house takes precedence of everything else. But she ought, at any rate as soon as her offspring are victimized, to know the parasite and give chase when, at every moment, she finds her almost under her feet and even in her house. Yet she pays no attention to her. The bitter experience of her ancestors, therefore, has bequeathed nothing to Hera a nature to alter her placid character, nor have her own tribulations ought to do with the sudden awakening of her vigilance in July. Like ourselves, animals have their joys and their sorrows. They eagerly make the most of the former. They fret but little about the latter, which, when all is said, is the best way of achieving a purely animal enjoyment of life. To mitigate these troubles and protect the progeny there is the inspiration of instinct, which I sable without the counsels of experience to give the halictai a portress. When the victualling is finished, when the halictai no longer sally forth on harvesting intent nor return all beflowered with their spoils, the old bee is still at her post, vigilant as ever. The final preparations for the brood are made below, the cells are closed. The door will be kept until everything is finished. Then grandmother and mothers leave the house. Exhausted by the performance of their duty, they go, somewhere or other, to die. In September appears the second generation, comprising both males and females. I find both sexes wassailing on the flowers, especially the compositi, the centauries and thistles. They are not harvesting now. They are refreshing themselves, holding high holiday, teasing one another. It is the wedding time. Yet another fortnight and the males will disappear, henceforth useless. The part of the idlers is played. Only the industrious ones remain, 
the impregnated females, who go through the winter and set to work in April. I do not know their exact haunt during the inclement season. I expected them to return to their native burrow, an excellent dwelling for the winter, one would think. Excavations made in January showed me my mistake. The old homes are empty, are falling to pieces owing to the prolonged effect of the rains. The zebra halictus has something better than these muddy hovels. She has snug corners in the stone heaps, hiding places in the sunny walls and many other convenient habitations. And so the natives of a village become scattered far and wide. In April, the scattered ones reassemble from all directions. On the well-flattened garden paths a choice is made of the site for their common labors. Operations soon begin. Close to the first who bores her shaft there is soon a second one busy with hers. A third arrives, followed by another and others yet, until the little mounds often touch one another, while at times they number as many as fifty on a surface of less than a square yard. One would be inclined, at first sight, to say that these groups are accounted for by the insect's recollection of its birthplace, by the fact that the villagers, after dispersing during the winter, return to their hamlet. But it is not thus that things happen. The Halictus scorns today the place that once suited her. I never see her occupy the same patch of ground for two years in succession. Each spring she needs new quarters. And there are plenty of them. Can this mustering of the Halicti be due to a wish to resume the old intercourse with their friends and relations? Do the natives of the same borough, of the Semi-Hamlet, recognize one another? Are they inclined to do their work among themselves rather than in the company of strangers? There is nothing to prove it, nor is there anything to disprove it. Either for this reason or for others, the Halictus likes to keep with her neighbors. This propensity is pretty frequent among peace lovers, who, needing little nourishment, have no cause to fear competition. The others, the big eaters, take possession of estates, of hunting grounds from which their fellows are excluded. Ask a wolf his opinion of a brother wolf poaching on his preserves. Man himself, the chief of consumers, makes for himself frontiers armed with artillery, hesits up posts at the foot of which one says to the other, here's my side, there's yours. That's enough. Now we'll pepper each other. And the rattle of the latest explosives ends the colloquy. Happy are the peace lovers. What do they gain by their mustering? With the Midas not a defensive system, a concerted effort to ward off the common foe. The Halictus does not care about her neighbor's affairs. She does not visit another's burrow, she does not allow others to visit hers. She has her tribulations, which she endures alone, she is indifferent to the tribulations of her kind. She stands aloof from the strife of her fellows. Let each mind her own business and leave things at that. But company has its attractions. He lives twice who watches the life of others. Individual activity gains by the sight of the general activity. The animation of each one derives fresh warmth from the fire of the universal animation. To see one's neighbors at work stimulates one's rivalry. And work is the great delight, the real satisfaction that gives some value to life. The Halictus knows this well and assembles in her numbers that she may work all the better. Sometimes she assembles in such multitudes and over such extensive ground as to suggest our own colossal swarms. Babylon and Memphis, Rome and Carthage, London and Paris, those frantic hives, occur to our mind if we can manage to forget comparative dimensions and see a cyclopean pile in a pinch of earth. It was in February. The almond tree was in blossom. A sudden rush of sap had given the tree new life, its boughs, all black and desolate, seemingly dead, were becoming a glorious dome of snowy satin. I have always loved this magic of the awakening spring, this smile of the first flowers against the gloomy bareness of the bark. And so I was walking across the fields, gazing at the almond trees carnival. Others were before me, an osmia in a black velvet bodice and a red woolen skirt, the horned osmia, was visiting the flowers, dipping into each pink eye in search of a honeyed tear. 
a very small and very modestly dressed Halictus, much buzier and in far greater numbers, was flitting silently from blossom to blossom. Official science calls her Halictus Malachorus, K. The pretty little bee's godfather strikes me as ill-inspired. What has Malachorus, calling attention to the softness of the rump, to do in this connection? The name of early Halictus would better describe the almond tree's little visitor. None of the meliferous clan, in my neighborhood at least, is stirring as early as she is. She digs her burrows in February, an inclement month, subject to sudden returns of frost. When none is yet, even among her near kinswomen, Daresto sally forth from winter quarters, she pluckily goes to work, shine the soon ever so little. Like the zebra Halictus, she has two generations a year, one in spring and one in summer. Like her, too, she settles by preference in the hard ruts of the country roads. Her mole hills, those humble mounds any two of which would go easily into Ahan's egg, rise innumerous in my path, the path by the almond trees which is the happy hunting ground of my curiosity today. This path is a ribbon of road three paces wide, worn into ruts by the mule's hoofs and the wheels of the farm carts. A coppice of home oaks shelters it from the north wind. In this Eden with its well-caked soil, its warmth and quiet, the little Halictus has multiplied her mole hills to such a degree that I cannot take a step without crushing some of them. The accident is not serious. The miner, safe underground, will be able to scramble up the crumbling sides of the mine and repair the threshold of the trampled home. I make a point of measuring the density of the population. I count from 40 to 60 mole hills on a surface of one square yard. The encampment is three paces wide and stretches over nearly three quarters of a mile. How many halicti are rather in this Babylon? I do not venture to make the calculation. Speaking of the zebra halictus, I used the words hamlet, village, township, and the expressions were appropriate. Here the term city hardly meets the case. And what reason can we allege for these innumerable clusters? I can see but one. The charm of living together, which is the origin of society. Like mingles with like, without the rendering of any mutual service, and this is enough to summon the early halictus to the same wayside, even as the herring and the sardinia assemble in the same waters. About Hacker Noon book series, we bring you the most important technical, scientific, and insightful public domain books. This book is part of the public domain. Jean-Henri Fabre, 2002. Bramble Bees and Others. Urbana, Illinois. Project Gutenberg. Retrieved October HTTPS colon slash slash www.gutenberg. Org, cache, EPUB, 3421, PG 3421 images. HTML This ebook is for the use of anyone anywhere at no cost and with almost no restrictions whatsoever. You may copy it, give it away or reuse it under the terms of the Project Gutenberg license included with this ebook or online at www.gutenberg.org. Located at https colon slash slash www.gutenberg.org. Policy. License. HTML. Thank you for listening to this Hackernoon story, read by Artificial Intelligence. Visit hackernoon.com to read, write, learn and publish. Dot.